Good morning. We are happy to be here this morning. It's been a few years. I think it was 2018 was the last time we were here as a family. So we're very grateful to be back, thankful for the hospitality of the newcomers. And I'm looking forward to being with you this evening. And I'll wait till this evening to introduce the family. And we'll talk at that time a little bit about our ministry and what the Lord is doing in our lives. Turn with me, please, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. What is a missionary? What do missionaries do? How can faithful missionary work be evaluated? Or another way to ask the question is, what is the mission of the church? That's actually an important question because it's a debated question for the last few decades. There are actually books written with that title, What is the Mission of the Church? Trying to answer what is an apparently elusive question. Well, I think most of us understand missionary work on a most basic level. We understand that before Jesus left the earth, he commissioned his disciples to go to the nations and to make disciples. We understand that as the gospel spread, it moved out from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and Galilee and spread like wildfire throughout the Roman world. And we understand that as it spread, churches were planted and new workers were sent out to, to start new works. We understand that. But, but here's my question. What did faithful missionaries like Paul do once they arrived in an area and new believers began to gather? What was it that they were trying to do? And I think this passage answers that question for us. Here in this passage, Paul is reflecting upon his ministry, his ministry of the gospel, the spread of the gospel throughout the whole world. So here in chapter 1, in verses 5 through 8, Paul describes the gospel as a seed that has been brought to the Colossian believers, and it's been planted, and it's been spreading throughout the whole world, and it's bearing fruit, and it's growing. In verse 23, he describes how the gospel has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. He says that he has been made a minister, a servant of the gospel. So in, a, in the most basic sense, that's what a missionary is. He's a, a servant of the gospel. But then in verses 24 through 29, Paul goes on to describe in greater detail his labors among the churches in, in great detail. And I think what we'll find here this morning is that this passage gives us a beautiful summary of what Paul and other missionaries did. And it doesn't say to us everything that could be said about missionary work. But this passage does, I think, give us an excellent summary of what faithful gospel ministry looks like. So let's look together, please, at Colossians 1, and I'll be reading from verse 24 down to verse 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy 
that he powerfully works within me. Let's briefly turn to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our eyes and ears, that we understand a little bit more about your heart, your heart for the nations, your heart for the world, your heart in sending your son and sending your spirit and sending your church into the world. Lord, I pray that you would ignite our hearts with love for you and with a deeper commitment to doing our part in the mission that you have given us as your church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, what I want us to see this morning in this passage is three tasks that missionaries fulfill, three points about what missionary work involves, and they're very simple. The first one is this, missionaries faithfully and fully proclaim God's word. That's what a missionary is. It's someone who faithfully and fully proclaims God's word. In verses 25 and 28, Paul makes here two statements about his ministry of the word. First, in verse 25, he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So Paul says that he has been given a stewardship on behalf of the church. And what is that stewardship? Well, he says it is to make the word of God fully known, literally to fulfill the word of God, to proclaim it fully. The NIV says to present to you the word of God in its fullness. So at the most basic level, what is Paul's strategy? What is his method for growing up and planting healthy churches? Well, it is this, to proclaim God's word to God's people in all of its fullness, to make it fully known to them. And as we know, that began with the proclamation of the gospel. In Paul's letters, he reflects on his desire to be a faithful minister of the gospel, as verse 23 calls him. He says that his desire is to go to places that have never heard about Christ, have never heard the gospel, and to proclaim him so that they might know about Christ. But what's important to understand is that his ministry does not stop with basic initial gospel preaching. He sees his responsibility of his among his converts, is continuing to fully preach God's word in all of its fullness. As we look through his epistles and through the book of Acts, we see Paul doing this faithfully. We can see it, for example, in Acts 20. Remember in Acts 20 when Paul met with the, the leaders of the Ephesian church and he reflected back over his three years of ministry among them. And he says during that time, I did not shrink from declaring to you what? The whole counsel of God. So that's it. Those weren't just three years of evangelizing new people. These are three years of full proclamation of God's word. So in that same passage, he can say that during that time, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you, Ephesian believers, in public and from house to house. So we have these statements, the, the whole counsel of God, everything that is profitable, the word in all of its fullness. What this means is that faithfulness to God's word and mission involves more than just broadly sowing the gospel as liberally as possible. It involves more than just getting as many hearers as possible. While we do want to spread the word as broadly as possible, depth Deep penetration of the word, once it takes root, is vitally important for faithful missionary work. So here in Colossians 1, Paul goes on in, verses 20, in verse 28 to, to flesh that out a little bit, to describe that. He says in verse 28, Him we proclaim, 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul uses here two words, two verbs, two participles to describe that faithful gospel ministry. The first one is the word warning. It's a word you may have heard of in the Greek. It's nutheteo. Not nuthetic counseling comes from this word. And it has reference to instructing and to admonishing and to warning in the New Testament. It carries the idea of giving instruction or counsel in order to correct wrong belief or wrong behavior. So this is the personal application of God's word to correct. Paul sees this as part of his faithful ministry of the word. So in passages like 2 Timothy 4, Paul tells us, um, tells Timothy that this is what his ministry of the word would look like. This is, this is a warning. He says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So that's a careful, patient process of correcting, corrective admonition and instruction. And then he goes on to use the word teaching, which is just the normal New Testament word for the orderly presentation of the truth to believers so that they might grow in their faith. And of course, Teaching is at the heart of the Great Commission. You remember in Matthew 28, how are they to make disciples of the nations? By teaching them to obey all that Christ had commanded. And we see that in the early church. Immediately after Pentecost, the early church began to gather together. And as the infant church, they dedicated themselves, first of all, to what? To the apostles' teaching. So this is a dedication to the presentation of truth. And note the wording in verse 28. Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Four times he uses those words, all and everyone, to to signal this careful, systematic, deliberate, prolonged, comprehensive ministry of the word that includes both positive teaching and corrective instruction. And Paul Again, told Timothy to do that with great patience and instruction. So this is Paul's missionary calling. This is Paul's missionary strategy. He does this, he says, in public and in private, from house to house. Friends, what that means is that there is no quick uh, shortcut, there's no silver bullet to accomplish the missionary task. Unfortunately, in the world of missions today, the need for speed seems to have won the day. I don't know if you're aware of it, but there literally still exist thousands of unreached people groups. These are groups of people in language groups around the world that have no access to the gospel. And what that means is that that they will live and die and never hear the gospel unless somebody deliberately crosses geographic and cultural and linguistic barriers to take them the gospel. The, The needs are huge. The needs are massive. What's happened in the last 50 years is as missionaries and mission organizations and churches have come to grasp the greatness of this task, what's happened is that the response has often been to look for faster, more streamlined methods to reach those people. In other words, the sense of urgency has caused missionaries and mission organizations to look for faster ways to make disciples. So whether it be in Bible translation or discipleship or evangelism or church planting or pastoral training, speed has become a core value. And we can see this If you just read the the missions literature, it's really quite discouraging 
So missions theorists, for example, tell us that if we use the right strategies, we can literally, a missionary using the right strategies can literally plant not, not just dozens, but scores of churches, multi-generations. So that's churches that have planted churches that have planted churches literally in under five years. So they're, they're called church planting movements. And if you do it right, you can walk into an area and do this, apply these methodologies and literally have scores and scores of churches within just a few short years. What they're doing is they're looking for faster methods to, to accomplish this task of the Great Commission. Another methodology that's very, very common in missions literature is called obedience-based discipleship, which normally how it's applied is the idea is the Great Commission tells us to teach all that Christ commanded. Well, that takes a bit of time. So what missions practitioners have done is they've gone through the teachings of Jesus and they've reduced the teachings of Jesus to, let's say, seven, usually that's the number, or ten basic commands of Jesus Christ. And as it turns out, you can disciple people pretty quickly if you can reduce the commands of Jesus to, to seven basic commands. And again, the goal is to somehow accomplish the mission as quickly as possible. And I think I understand the, the motivation behind that, but friends, speed cannot be our M.O. If, if speed is the test, then we will always be adjusting what our mission is. So, so here's the test of a faithful missionary, according to Paul. Is he willing to play the long game that, that Paul's describing in this passage? Is he willing not just to preach the gospel to get converts, but to take the time necessary to proclaim to, to them the whole counsel of God? What Paul is calling us for here is not a strategy driven by a need for speed, but a need for faithfulness, to make the word of God fully known, teaching and admonishing everyone. Not just a few basic commands of Jesus, but the whole counsel of God. Not just a few elementary truths, but the deeper theological truths of Scripture. We must teach the word fully enough, as we'll see in a moment, to bring people to full maturity. Now, as Paul proclaimed that message, it's very important in this passage to understand, it's not just about proclaiming some impersonal message. The specific content of that message is a person. So look again in verse 28. What does he say? Him we proclaim. We're not just proclaiming a message about something. We are proclaiming a person. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The antecedent to that word him is Christ in the preceding passage. So, so what does it mean to fully proclaim the word of God by proclaiming Jesus Christ? Well, I think Paul beautifully illustrates that in the book of Colossians. I love the book of Colossians. It's such a dear book because Paul is setting forth Jesus Christ. First of all, he's proclaiming to the Colossian people the glory of Jesus Christ. The book of Colossians is Paul just setting Christ before them so that they can see him fully. We can see this in this chapter in verses 15 through 20 in what's often called the Christ hymn where he tells them that Jesus is the, the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And on and on, throughout this letter, Paul is presenting them the fullness of Christ. And then he goes on to help them understand how being united to him, they have access to all that fullness so that they are complete in Jesus Christ. He tells them that in Christ, they have everything that they need for life and godliness. 
So proclaiming Christ means helping believers understand this gospel, the, what he says in verse 27, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul proclaims the glory of Christ, and then he labors diligently to help these people understand how, how Christ in them, their union, their connection with Jesus Christ gives them full sufficiency. That's what's happening in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, when he tells them, again, proclaiming the fullness of Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All right, here's where it connects to you. In, you, in him, then, you have been made complete. In Jesus Christ is an unfathomable storehouse of, of riches, treasures of wisdom and knowledge, he says in chapter 2, verse 3. He says in 3, 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So he's presenting to them the fullness of Christ. He's presenting to them their own sufficiency through their connection with Jesus Christ. And then he's just calling them over and over throughout this book to continue in him. That's what this letter is about. I think the thesis of Colossians is chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, which tells them, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. He calls them to sink their roots deeper and deeper into the fertile soil of Jesus Christ, to build themselves more and more up on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. And he says he toils and he labors, fully proclaiming the word of God through the person of Jesus Christ to bring them to this fullness of understanding of their place in Christ. Friends, rootedness and groundedness in Christ is fundamental to Christian maturity, and therefore it's fundamental to our Christian mission. It's not enough just to bring people to faith and to teach them a few basic inductions Bible study methods and then turn them loose, trusting that the Spirit and the Word will do its work. God calls us to fully proclaim His Word. This is what we do to make disciples throughout the world. This is deep discipleship, and we see Paul doing that throughout his letters and in the book of Acts. I mean, think about the Corinthian church. Kyle mentioned the Corinthian church this morning. It's an absolute mess. When you read through the book of Corinthians, you find a list of problems. Some count about 10 major, significant, moral and spiritual and theological problems in this church. And Paul begins the letter by saying, I have determined to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then he just works through that book, issue after issue, applying the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ to each individual issue. He's proclaiming the word in all of its fullness by proclaiming Christ in all of its, his glory so that they understand their fullness and sufficiency in Jesus Christ. Now, friends, this implies that, that the white-hot center of missionary work is proclaiming Jesus Christ and the gospel. And it gives us a very, very clear, simple answer to the question, what is the mission of the church. There, there's a lot of things that missionaries can do. There's a lot of work that can be done. Missionaries can do things like starting orphanages and starting clinics and helping provide clean water and helping single mothers find self-sustaining businesses and helping coffee growers find fair trade markets. But none of those at the end of the day is the heart and essence of our mission. At the end of the day, it's proclaiming Jesus Christ. And that's not because we don't care about justice and suffering and, and human flourishing. 
fact, John Piper puts it this way, we as Christians care about all human suffering, especially eternal suffering. The heart of the mission is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Him in his fullness, the word in its fullness. And there is a very specific goal in all of that. And Paul tells us what that goal is here. Look again at verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. We have that word that, which points to a purpose. That we may present everyone, what? Mature in Christ. So that's our second point. Missionaries strive for the full maturity of their converts. The word mature here simply has reference to something that is complete. That's, that's fully grown, that is free of deficiency and has attained its end or its purpose. Full maturity is the aim, it's the goal, it's the purpose, the end game of our mission. You know what, Paul, again, doesn't leave us wondering what that looks like. We have, if you just read through the book of Colossians, a beautiful picture of Christ-like maturity. He has a very clear profile of us for us of what that maturity looks like. In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he describes people who have, have received the gospel like a seed, and that seed is continuing to bear fruit in their lives just as it is all around the world. In his prayer in verse 9, he describes people who are growing in their knowledge of God, in their knowledge of his will. He prays that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. He describes people who are holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, he calls them to continue in their faith, stable, steady, steadfast, not shifting away from their hope of the gospel. So perseverance in the faith is a, is a mark of Christian maturity. In chapter 2, again, he describes people who are rooted and grounded and built up in Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, he calls them to a life of holiness, which involves putting off the old sinful characteristics and putting on the characteristics and attributes of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to teach them how all of this applies to all life situations in the workplace, in the home, between husbands and wives, and between parents and their children. The growth and maturity impacts all of life. And just look how Paul ends chapter 1. This is how Paul labors to do all of this, to proclaim the word in its fullness and to present Jesus Christ fully and to bring people to maturity in Christ. Notice Paul's words. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. On to chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those who are at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So, so maturity, Christ-likeness, is the goal of Paul's mission. And he says he labors tirelessly for years, again, house to house, in public, teaching and admonishing and warning God's people. That's a big vision, my friends. I think it helps us to just put into to, to stark clarity what the mission of the church is. I think if we understand this, we'll, we'll probably try to avoid using expressions that are very popular in modern missions, expressions like reaching the unreached. What's wrong with saying we are, we're trying to reach the unreached? Well, what does reach imply? 
it implies some kind of initial engagement. And if you don't think that matters, if you think I'm just playing with words, all you have to do is start reading missions literature, which shows us these ideas of coming in with fast strategies and initially bringing people to faith and quickly teaching them how to study the Bible and then moving on to new territories. Again, what is the mission of the church? I think it's a mistake to reduce missions just to to reaching the unreached because the goal of the Great Commission isn't just to, to reach the nations. It's what? It's to glorify God by making disciples mature, stable, obedient, Christ-like followers of Jesus. Sometimes missions researchers will define a group as reached when they've acquired a certain arbitrary percentage of Christian population. So they'll say that this has 2% Christian population. Usually Roman Catholics and other so-called Christians are thrown into that. So if they reach a 2% population of Christians, missionaries can kind of move on and go on to a new territory. The idea is that once a people has access to the gospel, once they've been engaged, we can direct our missionary energies elsewhere. I think that's a mistake. The question isn't, are they reached? What's the question? Are they discipled? Are, are they mature? One missionary put it like this, the great tragedy of the world is not that it's unreached, it's that it's undiscipled. Today in the missions world, there's just this tendency to reduce missions. And sometimes you'll see these two words used as if the whole world can be broken into two categories, reached and unreached. But as you work, look around the world and start interacting with churches around the world, you find that actually it's much more complex than that. In reality, I think we consider, can consider many other groups. Obviously, the, the, the unreached is very important, but there's another group. I think we can call them the misreached. Okay, these are peoples and places where the gospel has arrived, but in an impure, distorted form. I think much of the global south, like where I work, Latin America, sub-Saharan Africa, can be classified as misreached. These places are full of Roman Catholicism and radical Pentecostalism or some variety of the prosperity gospel, but they're Christian in name only. There may be an external form of Christianity that makes them look reached from the outside, but really they're they're not reached. They, They possess a different gospel. And we as missionaries, the church is called to go to people like that and and help them come to the kind of maturity that Paul's describing in this passage. There's another group I like to call them the once reached. These are people in places where there once was a faithful gospel presence, but at some point in history, the candlestick, using John's words from Revelation, the candlestick was removed from its place. It's interesting that the Middle East, now among the most unreached regions on earth, was once the, the epicenter of the infant church. Europe in the New Testament was the ends of the earth, but it later became the birthplace of the, place of the Reformation and then of the modern missions movement in the 18th century, 19th century. And now it's among the most atheistic, unchristian places on earth. Again, they need the gospel as well. They need mature Christians and healthy churches with the ebb and flow of the gospel throughout church history, many peoples and regions have moved back and forth between what we might call reached and unreached. And then there's a whole other group, I would call them the underreached. These are people and places that actually do have the true gospel. They actually have heard the true gospel of Jesus Christ, but they lack the health to grow and to make disciples and fend off 
false teaching. And I see this again all throughout Latin America. Perhaps they were evangelized. Somebody came in and preached the gospel but never discipled them. Uh, Perhaps a missionary planted a church but didn't bother to stick around and grow them to maturity. Perhaps a missionary started a church but never identified leaders and never taught them how to handle God's word. No one was taught to, using Paul's words to Titus, give instruction in sound doctrine and also be able to rebuke those who contradict it. And as a result, healthy churches are lacking. Churches are unhealthy at best and dying at worst, like Paul describes them in Ephesians 4. They are children that's spiritually immature, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So what do all of these groups need? Unreached, misreached, once reached, underreached, what do they need? They need faithful gospel workers to do what Paul is describing here in Colossians 1. Somebody to proclaim to them the word in its fullness. Faithful, qualified missionaries who are willing to play the long game, not just of evangelizing, but of discipling believers and discipling congregations to full maturity. So friends, as, as a missions mobilizer, I spend a lot of time talking to missionary candidates and talking to churches who want to send missionaries. And I think one of the greatest needs is for missionaries who are just willing to go and play the long game, to go and just pour out the rest of their life doing what your pastors do here. Right? It's really easy to find young, aspiring missionaries who are eager for a missionary adventure. Maybe their fire got lit by a David Platt or a John Piper sermon on missions, and they want to go do the missionary thing. But it's really hard to find people who are willing to just go and pastorally lay down their lives to do what Paul describes here in this passage. Let me just notice, as we end up, one more characteristics of missionaries here. Missionaries ultimately are servants of the church. So what that means is that missions and missionary work is not only gospel-centered and it's not only Christ-centered, I think it is church-centered, local church-centered. Look how Paul describes himself in this passage, verse 25. Here he calls himself a minister of the church, of which I became a minister. That's that word diakonos, or servant Now, in verse 23, he called himself a minister of the gospel as he talked about this worldwide proclamation of the gospel. But here he focuses in on his specific responsibility to the church and in the church and among the churches. He's not only a minister of the gospel, he's a minister of the church. The ministry that Paul has been given here, he says, is due to this stewardship that's been given to him by God. This word stewardship is often used by Paul to refer to his apostolic commission. And he says, God has given me a commission, a stewardship for who? For you, he says, for the Colossian believers. What this means is that missionaries aren't just kind of lone rangers that are going out, spreading the seed and evangelizing isolated Christians here and there. Everything that the the missionary does is pointed toward God's work in the world through the local church. Part of making disciples of the nations is gathering them into congregations of people where God's word is proclaimed. I mean, think about the commands of the Great Commission. Teaching them, baptizing them. In the New Testament, where is that taking place? It's taking place in the context of local churches. Proclaim the word in all of its fullness. Where is Paul doing that? That's happening in local churches. Where is Christ being proclaimed and where are people being brought to full maturity in Christ? 
So missionary work is about making disciples of the nations. And the, the part of that process, the, the culminating part of that process is gathering them into communities of faith where they're grown, grown and built up in their faith. And we, we see this emphasis constantly in Paul's ministry. Again, I think this is often lost in, in modern mission literature. Think for a moment about Paul's ministry. How, how did his, his ministry, his stewardship as a servant of the church play out? You know, it's fascinating to me that in the book of Acts, as intent as Paul is on proclaiming the gospel where Christ has not been heard, it's, it's amazing to me that a significant portion of his missionary travels was dedicated to careful, ongoing ministry among already established congregations around the Mediterranean world. If you just think through his missionary journeys, that's the case. His first missionary journey, he goes to Galatia. He plants churches in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derby. It's the first half. And the second half is what? Going back through those churches appointing elders, and Luke says, strengthening the churches. So the second half of his missionary journey was strengthening the churches. Then his second missionary journey, at the end of Acts 15, they proposed to go on a second missionary journey, and here was the purpose of that journey. Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord to see how they are. So they go back again and they visit all these churches, and then Luke reports, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Over and over, Luke uses that word strengthened to describe Paul's ongoing ministry among the churches. Third missionary journey, same thing. He spent a significant amount of time revisiting the churches of, of Galatia and of Macedonia and of Achaia, even as he was going to new areas to preach the gospel. So I've, I've taken this, this time to, to go through those because Again, that's often not seen in modern mission literature. One author characterized Paul as always pressing on to find new fields to conquer, leaving new converts to fend for themselves after a minimum of instruction. Does that, does that describe what we've seen here in this passage? No, that, that's not the case. Paul was desiring to preach the gospel where Christ was not named, but he continued his work and labors among the churches. In fact, the churches of, of Galatia and Asia and Macedonia and Achaia each received two or three return visits from Paul over the course of a few short years. And that doesn't include uh, separate visits from his co-workers. Paul's so committed to the, the health and the strength and the maintenance of the churches that he often sends his church planting team members back to existing churches to do long-term work among them. So, for example, Timothy is left behind in Berea when Paul has to leave prematurely. Paul is then forced to leave Thessalonica prematurely, but he quickly sends Timothy back to establish them in their faith and to exhort them. Tychicus is sent to Colossae. Titus is sent to Crete. Later, Timothy is sent to Philippi and then dispatched into Asia for long-term pastoral work centered in the city of Ephesus on and on. Here's my, my point, friends. As Paul planned his missionary work and strategy over the years, the needs of the church, the needs of the churches, not just of the unreached, dictated his itinerary. He and his team continued to labor tirelessly among already established churches. He writes letters to them. He prays for them. Remember, he says he prays day and night for them. 
The well-being of the churches is such a constant preoccupation for Paul that in 2 Corinthians 11, he lists among his missionary sufferings, along with beatings and shipwrecks and imprisonment, he lists the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches as part of his missionary suffering. He often comments on his labors among them. He desires to visit the Thessalonians to supply what is lacking in their faith. He toils to present the Corinthians as a pure virgin in Christ. He labors as though in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in the Galatians. Again, it's not just the needs of those who haven't heard, but the needs of those who have heard but need strengthening that occupy his time. His missionary work is as pastoral as it was pioneering. He was a pastoral missionary theologian. Again, Paul didn't just swoop in, make a few converts, gather them quickly into a church, and then move on into virgin territory. Here's how one author describes it. There's not a restless rushing around from one new opening to another, but rather a methodical progress, both concerned with initiating work in new areas and at the same time with bringing emergent groups in those areas to stable maturity. Friends, I think one helpful way to look at what missionary work does or what missionary work involves is just to think about your strategy here and what's going on here week after week. It's often thought that when you cross cultural or linguistic or geographic barriers, the gospel ministry suddenly radically changes. So what you do over there is different from what we do over here. When you go over there, your strategies need to change I think the book of Colossians, this passage, chapter 1, 24 to 29, just helps us to understand Paul's heart for the church. And this can be a, an incredible uh, instruction for us as a local church, dear friends. Are you committed to these things? Are you committed to proclaiming the word and to receiving the fully proclaimed word? Are you committed to coming here every week and growing in your understanding of Jesus Christ and his glory and his sufficiency and allowing that to seep into your life so that your roots can be more deeply rooted and grounded in him so that your life is an outgrowth and an overflow of your daily communion and fellowship and connection with him? Friends, one of the greatest things that you can do for world missions, even more than supporting and praying for missionaries, is just raising up a generation of young people who love Christ and are mature in Christ and can go out into the world, into the workplace, other nations in some cases, other counties, other cities, other states in other cases, sometimes in, this own, in your own very area, and just live out the gospel as, as proclaimers of the gospel. It's beautiful for me that in chapter 128, when Paul says, describing his ministry, it's warning and teaching everyone. And in Colossians 3.16, Paul uses those exact two same words to describe the church. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he uses those two words, nutheteo and didasco. So warning, admonishing, and teaching one another. So the one anothering teaching ministry is just an overflow of the work of the apostolic pro proclamation of the truth, and that's lived out here, and through that means ripple effects are moving out as the gospel spreads out from here, just like it did from Colossae and the other faithful churches in the New Testament. May it be so. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the faithfulness of men like Paul and of his team. Lord, I pray that what's described here would be true of Christ our Savior Baptist Church. Lord, I pray that this would be a community of word-filled truth speakers. 
Lord, I pray that, that these brothers and sisters in Christ would be hungry for your word, that the elders and teachers of this church would be faithful to proclaim it, faithful to lift up Jesus Christ and display him in all of his glory and to connect the dots between Christ's fullness and our sufficiency as people united to Christ. Lord, I pray that, that the gospel would be lived out in this, in this community of believers. And then as these believers go out into the world and into the workplace and into their neighborhoods, I pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be faithfully proclaimed. And Lord, would you raise up a generation of young people who are continuing the work of this, this assembly, this congregation, and are likewise going into the nations to continue the work that you've begun here. Lord, we thank you for the faithfulness of this church. Would you continue to bless my brothers and sisters in Christ here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.